0: Getting into Afghanistan right now is a little weird. Journalist Lynn O'Donnell, she's used to weird. She's been a foreign correspondent for years. But when she made plans to go to Kabul back in July, even she found it weird. Take getting her visa. Lynn went to the Afghan embassy in London, told them her plans. But the embassy, it doesn't have any contact with the Taliban government. She says it's still flying the old flag from before the Taliban took over.
1: And so it wasn't like they sent my application to Kabul, to the foreign ministry, to issue me with a media visa.
0: Hold it, that's so strange. So the embassy just operates... It's like a zombie embassy operating from pre-Taliban times?
1: Yes, and most of them in, in around the world are, and the one in the U.S. has been closed down.
0: When they gave you that visa where they were like, sure, if you want to go. like,
1: <laughs> Well, exactly, but the sure if you want to go was accompanied with an affidavit that I signed to say that I knew that I was taking a risk in going and that I accepted the risk and that the embassy here was not part of that risk. Lynn always liked Kabul. She calls it the busiest
0: city she's ever worked in. Glamorous, buzzy. But when she touched down last month,
1: it felt different. Somber. There was hardly any traffic. Nobody was smiling. And a friend of mine uh, reminded me, an Afghan who's now living in exile, reminded me the other day that as soon as I got there, I, I sent him a text that said, there's fear in the air. Wow. I mean, I I
0: understand that what happens when you arrive in Afghanistan as a journalist is that you go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and you meet with this New Zealander. He's Afghan, but he was raised in New Zealand. And he kind of gives you a lecture about keeping an open mind about the Taliban. Did you go through that too?
1: I I did go and meet with um, the man who calls himself... Abdul Kaha Balki, the spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs under the Taliban. That's not his real name. He um, is a New Zealand citizen and he launched into me. um, He called me a white supremacist colonialist. He told me that the intelligence agency of the Taliban did not recognize me as a journalist, that I would be asked to leave the country This official did not
0: like that Lynn had reported on women who were worried about ending up in forced marriages. He especially didn't like that Lynn called these women potential sex slaves. She'd written about gay Afghans, too. Her sources on those stories were
1: anonymous. This official wanted names. Bulky. he threatened my life before I left his office. And then it was the following day that the intelligence guys caught up with me and detained me. I said to them, look, I know that you want me to leave. And so I booked a flight, I'm packing, I'm going to leave. That's what you want. The guy from intelligence said, that's not Bulky's decision, that's my decision. We need an urgent face-to-face meeting to discuss your crimes. And if you do not agree to meet with us, then I will make sure that all borders are closed against you and you cannot leave the country.
0: Today on the show, Lynn O'Donnell says her time in Afghanistan showed her who the Taliban really is. A year after the American pullout, who exactly is that? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. Lynn O'Donnell's resume is long, and she specializes in conflict. She's reported from Iraq, North Korea. Eventually, she headed up bureaus in Kabul for both Ajahn's France Press and the Associated Press. This country, Afghanistan, and its people,
1: won her over. I kind of got addicted to the story. I think the region is probably one of the most interesting and volatile in the world. Um, I worked with wonderful teams, um, at large multimedia teams of Afghans, and I really enjoyed the sort of multilateral, multi-layered interaction that running a war bureau entails.
0: What did all those men make of you? A woman sort of doing her own thing, leading coverage in a pretty conservative country.
1: Some of them liked it and some of it didn't. Some of them didn't. I mean, I left one job because um, I started to receive death threats that were signed by ISIS. And after thinking about this for a little while, I thought ISIS doesn't send death threats, you know, they, they just do it. And it turned out that it was more likely than not from people inside my bureau. So, you know. Yeah, if you get any in a, in a conservative religious country like Afghanistan at war for 40 years, you put 40 Afghan men, and that's the team that I had working with and for me, into a room, 10% are going to be extremists. And so I decided about a year after I got this letter that I should probably leave. And I left with great regret, really, much earlier than I had wanted to. But, you know, salavi. Even after all
0: that, Lynn kept coming back. She was in the country last summer when American troops
1: were readying to pull out for good. I went back in uh, May last year as a freelance and I hooked up with my friend Massoud Husseini, I mentioned before, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. And this particular place we went to in a valley in the middle of the highlands in a province called Bamiyan had been overrun by the Taliban for four days. And then the local militias had pushed the Taliban out.
0: So it was a little preview of Taliban takeover.
1: Well, exactly. And and when we heard what had happened during those four days, it confirmed rumors we had been hearing from other parts of the country about uh, what was taking place in areas that the Taliban were taking over, how they were treating local people and local women in particular. What did you hear? We heard that they came in and they split themselves up into commissions. So there was one commission in charge of assessing what the economic viability of this particular valley was. And there was one particular commission that ordered the mullahs to use the loudspeakers of the mosques to tell people to make lists of all the girls and women in their families and hand it to the mosques because the Taliban were going to marry off the women and the girls to their fighters as reward for victory. Oh. Yeah.
0: So after that warning from the Taliban, this this four-day takeover, people in the town, they began trying to send the women and girls away, right?
1: oh, the women packed up their stuff and fled of their own volition. They're like, we're out of here, you know. And and the men stayed behind and the women left en masse. They they walked out, they drove out, they hired cars, they put their stuff in wheelbarrows and pushed pushed them out. Some went to, to Kabul a couple of hundred miles away. Some went into the hills surrounding the valley. Everybody just disappeared. And when I got there, it was only a couple of days after the Taliban had been pushed out, but um, the These three um, ladies told us just how terrifying and harrowing their experience had been. And, you know, think about it. You're totally enslaved. It's sex slavery. Being forced to marry against your will is sex slavery. That's what they were running away from. That's what had confronted them. And that's what we had heard rumored in other areas now coming under Taliban control. Do you know what's happened
0: to the people who spoke to you and told you about all this?
1: No, I don't. A lot of things prey on my mind, Mary, and that's one of them. This spring you
0: wrote about LGBTQ Afghans and how they were being evacuated piecemeal. There, There were so many who wanted to leave, but I think when you wrote, it was something like 80 had been able to get out by one organization why did you want to tell that story?
1: I think in a country and society like Afghanistan's anyway even before the Taliban came into power LGBTQ people are amongst the most vulnerable uh, that you could imagine and it's like they don't exist people people in that society really don't want to generally acknowledge that homosexuality and um other minority sexualities, if you like, exist.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the people you spoke to was a 24 year old gay man. And he said, Afghanistan has become like a birdcage for me, which I thought was a very sad and beautiful way to put it because it also speaks to how fragile he felt. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think he was fragile beforehand, you know, he's, his brother and his father, he's, he's told me for a long time, don't treat him well. And now he feels that added a vulnerability comes from the brownie points, the kudos that some people might see that they could earn with the new Taliban overlords by dobbing him in, by exposing him. Was he trying to leave? Oh, he's desperate to leave. He's on lists up the wazoo, but you know, so are a lot of people. And it's very, very difficult for people who don't have visas out or for other countries or don't have passports. Yeah, it's, he's desperate to leave and have a normal life. That's what he wants.
0: As the anniversary of the US pullout of Afghanistan approached, how did you think about it? Like, did you always know you were going to go back?
1: Well, I went back because I felt that it was absolutely essential for me as someone who is often introduced as an Afghanistan expert to go and see for myself. And that was my motivation. And I think that the most important part of this is that I went to see what it's like. And even though I was there for a very short space of time, the Taliban showed me what it's like, what they are like, what their tactics are like.
0: After the break, how Lynn found herself in the Taliban's crosshairs. After Lynn O'Donnell landed in Afghanistan last month and realized just how unwelcome she was, she had a choice. Keep reporting or get out of the country as fast as she could. She ended up doing a little of both, booking a return flight while continuing to do her work. She went to a factory where she saw women cutting gemstones to make jewelry. She passed out her phone number to anyone who wanted it. But she also did something else. Right after that first meeting with Balki, the guy in the foreign ministry, she established a WhatsApp group. She filled it with journalists and diplomats,
1: and she flipped on live location tracking, just in case. On the Monday, I went to see Bolki, and on the Tuesday, it, the intelligence agency guys said that they would close all the borders to me, not let me out of the country, unless I went to meet with them, and I invited them to my guest house.
0: And all this time you're reporting at the same time? Yeah. While managing <laughs> All of this, all of these threats? Multitasking. <laughs> all right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did actually. I, I met with a lot of people in between all of this, I'm glad to say. Um, so they the intelligence guys came over to my guest house early afternoon on Tuesday the 19th and took me away under armed escort. Uh, from my guest house to the headquarters of the General Directorate of Intelligence, as they call it now.
0: Did you start to worry then, or were
1: you already worried? I was already worried. That's why I had set up the um, WhatsApp group and the location tracking. Funnily enough, they didn't take my phone away from me, but I handed the guy, what, you know, they were sitting opposite each other on a long table, and I handed Ahmad Zahil, um, my passport and then threw it with contempt on the table. And he and the the two other guys started talking about my crimes. And I said, okay, well why don't we just sit here and talk about it? You know, I'm quite open to the conversation. What's what are the problems? And they looked at me, you know what the problem is. And then they looked at each other and said, she knows (laughs) it was just getting, oh, it started off weird and it got weirder as it went. So then um, they took me outside under armed escort and I was texting this WhatsApp group and telling them, now they're taking me away. Now I have to go with them. Um, Now we're in the lift, you know.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) It was very, very strange. And at another time during this interrogation, apropos of absolutely nothing, the other chap who was part of this um, brigade said to me, I like cats too. Cats hadn't come up in the conversation at all.
0: Was he looking at your Instagram or
1: Twitter or something? At the time, but he obviously had you know, of course, I put my cats on my Instagram feed. What else is it for? Um, and I just looked at him and started to talk to him about cats, and then he realized that this was not really appropriate for an interrogation and stopped talking to me about cats. It was all insane. It was so insane, the whole thing.
0: How long did all of this?
1: last they had me in their custody for about 4 hours
0: when did they make you apologize
1: well at first they shouted at me they wanted to shout at me there are no gays in afghanistan you've made this up this is lies who are these people that you've named they don't exist what do you think of it is 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 journalism how can you justify yourself and then i would go to answer and they would just keep shouting at me and then I said, and so how does this all end? Where do we go from here? And they said, well, you have to apologise. And I said, sorry. They said, no, not like that. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm very, very sorry. How do you want me to apologise? They said, well, you've got to do it publicly. I said, okay. How do we do that? Well, you've got to do it on Twitter. I said, so how does that work? You tell me and I tweet. And they said, yeah, so I got out my notebook and they and said, what is it you want me to say? And they told me and I started writing it down. And they had also stood around me when they said to me, unless you apologize, you're going to go to jail. The choice is yours.
0: So that was threatening.
1: Oh, yeah, that was pretty threatening. And that was when I, I knew, you know, I had no bravado. I was in this situation that was utterly unpredictable. And I had no idea where it was going to go or what was going to happen. I was clearly very vulnerable. And the Taliban have a history of taking foreigners hostage and imprisoning them for leverage. And so the vulnerability was just built into this situation. Yeah. People were calling me, people were texting me, um, because that's you know the general course of our, our our lives we live on online, but I don't know still not sh- quite sure how. But some people learned that I was in Taliban custody. I think Masood started to tell some people. It got to my um, editor at Foreign Policy, and he called me, and I answered the phone and we had a conversation along the lines of are you okay yes are you in any danger i said one moment excuse me mr zahil am i in any danger <laughs> mr zahil was on his own phone and he said um, no you're not in any danger we've got air, the aircon is on and you've got a cup of tea you've got a bottle of water what more do you want
0: oh wow yeah how quickly did you make the confession and then how quickly were you
1: released? Oh, there was another hour in it. There was a lot of back and forth in that. They dictated it. I wrote it. I sent it to them. They sent it to their boss who edited it, who sent it back. And then they, they you know I put it onto a tweet. They took it off me and made it into a thread. And then gave my phone back to me and I tweeted it. And before all this happened, I said to them, I said to the guys, look, in all seriousness, hand on heart, I'm telling you really what I really think you should know here is that if you make me do this, you're going to look silly.
0: That's the thing I don't get, because if you look at the apology you issued on Twitter, it's clear that no one who knows you thinks it's real. Like one of the responses is either she's drunk or someone else is using her account.
1: <laughs> someone
0: says clearly these are hostage tweets right away. Yes, exactly.
1: And someone else is like, Australians don't spell apologize with a Z. This is clearly not Lynn.
0: <laughs> Why do you think they let you go? Because now as the anniversary of the Taliban's takeover approaches, Your story is in the news, it doesn't seem like it's a great look for them.
1: Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. And, you know, the subtext of this whole experience was violence and hubris. So they have no idea how they are seen from the outside because their default position is of unassailable victory and the power that that victory gives them. And they operate with impunity. They kidnap people. They detain them in secret. They beat them up. They torture them and they kill them with impunity. There is no law. There is no security. They do whatever the hell they like. They told the manager of my guest house, we can shut you down whenever we like. They detained my driver for three days, tortured him, deprived him of sleep, and kept his phone and his car.
0: It's like anyone who touched you was implicated.
1: You know, Mary, a friend of mine has just been held in Communicado for 24 hours, also a foreign journalist working for an Indian TV station, and his driver and his translator are still being held. And the the lies that they tell the outside world about what they do and what people like I do are the lies they tell themselves. So what they did by thinking they were being clever, by abusing me and threatening me and forcing me to make false confessions on Twitter and on video, was hand me this platform for telling you and your listeners and everybody else who wants to hear this story just what they are like. But they don't care about it either because they've got the guns and they've got the country.
0: You know, when you wrote about your experience, the title of the column was, the Taliban detained me for doing my job. I can never go back. But I don't know if that's true, talking to you. You seem to care pretty deeply about this place.
1: The fact is that I, I think that what I saw and what I came up against and what is happening in Afghanistan is completely unsustainable, utterly unsustainable. The days are numbered. The only question is what is the number?
0: Why are you so confident? I mean, they've lasted through 20 years of American occupation, just waiting for this moment to take over once again.
1: They're incompetent. People are starving to death. There's no money. There's no traffic on the road because petrol is $1.20 a uh, a litre. And the Taliban have stolen thousands and thousands of privately owned cars. You cannot function. like Eventually, there will be food riots or there will be some sort of uprising. And what we have seen in the last few days with the killing of the al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, in the center of Kabul is also a symptom of what is happening inside the Taliban. What Lynn means by this is the fact that
0: the U.S. was able to target an al-Qaeda terrorist In downtown Kabul, it shows how divided the Taliban itself is. That's because it's clear some Taliban leaders thought sheltering al-Zawahiri was a good idea, even though other Taliban leaders promised the U.S. government they would do no such thing. It sounds like you're saying the center can't hold here but it just sounds like things will get much worse before anything gets better.
1: They'll definitely get worse, but the centre has just cracked and we have just seen the fissures. It's now obvious. What happened with the killing of the Ozawahiri um, was that the internal divisions have just become public and can no longer be denied. And once an organisation like that, that pretends that it's monolithic, in its control of a geographical space starts to fall apart, its power and its hold also falls apart.
0: Lynn O'Donnell, I'm really grateful for your insight and your time. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Lynn O'Donnell is a columnist at Foreign Policy and an Australian journalist and author. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what you're listening to right now, the best way to support us is to go ahead and join Slate Plus. You can do that by going over to Slate.com slash WhatnextPlus to sign up. It'll tell our bosses you really like what we do. That's always good for us. It'll also give you access to Slate.com and all the great stuff there, and ad-free podcasts, including this one. So go do it right now. Slate.com slash what next plus. What next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Rubinova, Anna Phillips, and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'm going to be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. I'll catch you then. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop
1: by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.